I want to talk a little bit about waiting. I want to talk a little bit about waiting this morning. Um, if you, all of us have had the experience of waiting, whether it be for a Christmas gift, you know, most of the time you get a Christmas gift and then around January, you realize that you missed something, right? It was like, now they, they begin to show commercials again and you realize that's what I really wanted, except it's too expensive for anybody to buy. So now I got to wait till next Christmas before I can ask for that gift again. And so there's a period of wait in between what you know you'll probably, you probably can get and, and the reality of not having it for a year. Or maybe you've had a bad job and you switched jobs and, and you got the, you, the interview was great. They call you, they say, you're hired, and you say, great, when can I start? And they say, next month. You say, no, I want to start next month. This job is crazy. I want to start today. And so there's like a month between you being in this job and saying, man, I can't wait to leave this job, and, and you actually getting the new job, right? Or maybe there, maybe it's a car that you wanted and, and you don't have a car. So you're used to, you used to, you know, hitching rides with everybody. You're used to paying, paying for cab fares. You, or maybe you got a broke down car that's not reliable and you're like, man, it, it, I can't wait to get this car. And you're like maybe two checks away from getting this car. You know that you're about to get the car. You just need two more checks to come in before you get the car. And, 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 and there's a period where you, where you know you're going to get the car, but you're waiting on getting the car. And there's all sorts of emotions that, that are wrapped up in that because there's an emotion of, of joy and happiness and anticipation as you think about getting the car. But then there's a moment of, of strain and, and, and a moment of tension and a moment of frustration that you don't have the car or that you don't have the job or that you don't have the Christmas gift that you wanted. And we live life like this. It's not just Christmas gifts. It's not just cars. It's not just jobs. It's just life. We live in the in-between. We live in the reality that I, I, I'm, I, like, I like my life. I love my life. I love the fact that I've been found in Christ Jesus. I love the fact that I've been forgiven by his, by his grace and by his mercy and that I've been saved and redeemed. And I love the fact that he has brought me into a family of believers who testify to the same things. But I despise... Watching my wife cry over a rotator cuff surgery. And I despise watching friends and loved ones that I know suffer. And I despise watching people that I love and that I know suffer during a time that's supposed to be a joyous occasion because in the midst of this joyous occasion, they're reminded afresh of what they've lost. And I absolutely hate the politics of our day. And I absolutely hate that some people still have to await a different time or another time before justice can really be established in this life. Where we can take true confidence that everybody is being treated fairly and equally. I hate all of that. And so there's this frustration that, that, that maybe, maybe you hate it like I hate it. And so there's this frustration there in which we live in between. 
We're living in this life where we're known by Jesus Christ, and yet we are longing for a life that we know is to come but has not yet arrived. I want to talk about waiting this morning. Because that's the, that's the essence of Advent. Advent is waiting. Advent is not just about waiting for what has come or, or celebrating what has come, but Advent is actually about waiting for what is to come. It's not just about the first coming, but it's about the second coming as well. It's a yearning. It's a celebration and a yearning. Because you know we're there, but we're not there, right? We're there, but we're not there. We still have more to go. In this text, there's a, there's a man that is uniquely built for Advent. And there's a question that this man asks. And there's an answer that this man gets. And then there's hope for this man and for us as well. A man for Advent, a question for Advent, an answer for Advent, and a hope, the hope for Advent. There are a few biblical figures more suited for the Advent season than John the Baptist. Advent is all about arrival, all about anticipation of what's to come. Jesus entering into the world, once at the incarnation to rescue us from the curse of sin, and then again at his glorious second return to consummate his completed work and deliver us once and for all from the impacts of sin. And John was a man that was born for the purpose of proclaiming the first arrival of Jesus Christ. Three three different types of sources affirm this. One being a prophetic. The prophetic witness affirms, affirms John's suitableness to this role. The prophets cried long before John was ever born. Seven, eight hundred years before he arrived. Isaiah declared that a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare, I'm sorry, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for God. He was talking about John. Matthew tells us that. Malachi prophesied about the arrival of John the Baptist. He said in chapter 3 of his book, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. God sends the messenger. The messenger being whom? John. Malachi says again in chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Malachi says this, that Elijah is coming. And as Matt just read to us, Jesus says that Elijah is John. And so John had the, prof, the, the backing of the prophets, but John had the backing of mom and dad as well. John the Baptist's fitness for Advent was not only decried or not only cried out and proclaimed by Old Testament prophets, but it was proclaimed by his mom. As Elizabeth, the mother of John, carried John in her womb. Scripture speaks of an incident in Luke 1 where Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus and the cousin of Elizabeth, shows up at Elizabeth's. And as Mary's voice is echoing to Elizabeth and ultimately to the womb of Elizabeth. The little baby boy John hears it 
and immediately in the womb leaps for joy. And Elizabeth says, my son leaps at the voice of the mother of the Savior of the world. And so Elizabeth knows that John is indeed the one to come, the, 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 the one to prepare the way. He is, he is literally proclaiming the, the, the way and preparing the way even before he came out of the womb. He's proclaiming Christ. His father was visited by an angel. Luke chapter 1 again, verse 13 through 17, it says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zachariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, even in the womb, the spirit of the living God will be living in this baby. Must be more than just clumps of cells in there then. If the spirit can live in it, can live in him before he comes out. So this baby is a baby preparing the way even before he comes out. And of course, you know, he had to hear these stories from mom and dad. Mom telling him about, boy, when you was in my belly and Mary came over here that day, you jumped just to hear her voice. And dad telling them, boy, listen, I'm telling you it was an angel that showed up and told me about you. It's just my, it's my Zechariah voice. <laughs> Maybe he didn't speak like that. But nevertheless, he's heard it over and over again. And, and of course, he, 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 he has the prophetic witnesses. He has the parental witnesses. He has the personal witness, his own witness. He knows in his bones what God has called him to do. He accepts and embraces this calling fully. And he, he, he grows in age and stature and, and he starts his ministry, not in, not in temples and synagogues, but he starts his ministry in the wilderness of Judea. And he, and he, and he replaces the fine priestly robes for, for coverings with camel's hair. He replaces the, the fine delicacies and cuisine for locusts and honey. Here he is, rough around the edges, camel hair, locusts and honey, in the wilderness, declaring, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He speaks boldly to the religious elite and he says to them, you brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
He's proclaiming, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. He is sure and certain about his calling. He is going out and just delivering haymakers preaching, calling out the powers that be, calling men and women to repentance, saying turn from sin and turn to God. He has prophetic, parental, and personal witness, all testifying to the reality That he is where he's supposed to be. That he is uniquely prepared for the coming of the Savior. That there is no one more prepared for Advent than John. And yet, in Luke chapter 7, John, the same John that we just described, seems to be a totally different John when we read in chapter 7. The John we just spoke of is a man who was suited for this Advent moment. It's a moment he's been preparing for. It's a moment he was uniquely gifted for and uniquely called into. And yet the John of Luke 7 seems to be completely jarred and discombobulated by the Savior's arrival now. The question that this John is asking is a very alarming one especially considering all that we know about this John. So here's my question. How did we get from the John baptizing on the banks of the Jordan River to this John in Luke chapter 7, asking Jesus if he is even the Savior that they were looking for? And we answer that question by answering another question. Where did John's question actually come from? Well, first, we know the question comes from a molded, cramped, and stinky prison. But that's not the where that I'm concerned with. I want to know where did the question originate in his heart? Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 6, rather, Mark and the other gospel writers give us an account of John being arrested. King Herod was the one responsible. Herod was seeing his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. And John spoke truth to power, said, you cannot be with this woman. In fact, he says, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so Herod feared John because of his stature amongst the community. Herodias hated John. And so they came to a truce 
which was basically to put John in prison. And John's been in prison, speaking truth to power. John saw the arrival of the Savior, baptized him with his own hands. John saw the Spirit come down out of heaven and anoint Jesus Christ. John heard his father tell him, boy, an angel told me what you were supposed to do. John heard his mother tell him, boy, you leaped at the sound of this man's mother to affirm to all of us that this man was, in fact, who we had awaited for. And yet John is asking Jesus, are you really him? See, it appears that John saw the arrival of the Savior as the arrival of the kingdom reign, where righteous actions finally and forever would be handled rightly. Where speaking truth to power would finally be dealt with in a just way. That I could speak truth to power and be rewarded and not punished. That the right things would be rewarded rather than result in suffering and persecution. That the people doing good would thrive and the people doing evil would falter. Jesus seems to have, or John seems to have interpreted the arrival of Jesus as the departure of suffering. He saw the arrival of the good and righteous king as a sign that the reign of evil and unrighteous ones was over. And yet, after all the preparation, all the prophecies, all the signs, after all the proclamation, here he is now in a prison with no hope. No hope of a future, at least in this life. And no certainty of anything other than death and imprisonment. Family, suffering has the ability to disrupt our confidence. Suffering carries the ability to disrupt our confidence. Many of you in this room have your confidence disrupted as we speak. Because maybe suffering has impacted you in such a way. Maybe suffering has invaded your home in, in, a, in a unique way. Maybe suffering has invaded your body in, in a unique way. Maybe suffering has invaded your relationships in a unique way. Maybe suffering has invaded people that you love. Maybe you just look at the suffering that's typical in this world and you see good people, good people being snuffed out and, and evil people seeming to climb to, to heights unceasing, un, unceasing and unknowing. We just continue to climb. You begin to wonder to yourself, what does this all mean? And you begin to ask, are you the savior that we've been waiting for or should we look for another one? This is where this question comes from for John. 
And so he has disciples of his come and visit him. And John says, I need you to send a question back to the one named Jesus, the one I baptized, my kin, my family member, the one I know, the one I grew up with, the one I've prepared and lived my whole life preparing the way for. I need you to send something back to him. I need, a, I need, I need him to answer this question for me. Question's a simple question, right? Are you the one? Are you the one? Or shall we look for another? Now, keep in mind that he's asking this question when the disciples come and tell him all that Jesus has done. So Jesus has been healing. Miracles have been being, miracles are being performed. People are being healed. Water is being turned into wine. Food is being multiplied. Children are being raised from the dead. And they, and, 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 and the disciples come excited to share the good news about all the things that, that are happening. Through the, through the works of Jesus Christ. And, and, and John is saying, I need you to send a question back to him. Are you the one? Or should we look for another? You understand that? Because see, see, this, this is the thing you have to understand. God can be working all around us. But if God isn't working in our situations, Sometimes it doesn't help our doubt. God is working everywhere around John. But John is still in prison. Which is why John asked the question, are you the one? I get that you're healing some people, that's cool, but I thought you were supposed to put it into all of our suffering, not just some people. You ever find yourself asking that question in the silent hours of your nights? I mean, I get that so-and-so got married. I get that so-and-so got healed. I, I get that so-and-so's family is awesome. What about mine? What about my marriage? What about, what about my healing? That's the question. Here's the answer. It's not the answer we're looking for. Here's the answer. Listen. Verse 22. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. Poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, Jesus, to John's question, are you the one? Did my mother testify to me in vain? Did my father testify to me in vain? Um, did they get it mixed up? 
have I, have I wasted my life doing this? Jesus responds to John, everything that you thought I was, I am. And everything that you thought I would do, I am doing. Here's what's interesting about what Jesus does. Jesus responds to John by quoting basically a passage of promise from the prophets. And that passage of promise talks about, Isaiah talks about these things. He talks about, in verse 22, the blind receiving sight. He talks about the lame walking. He talks about lepers being cleansed. He talks about the death hearing. He talks about the dead being raised up. He talks about the poor having good news preached to them. And he also talks about the brokenhearted being mended. And he also talks about prisoners being let free. But Jesus doesn't quote that. He only quotes the things preceding that. And he leaves the quote open concerning prison. Because basically he's telling John that I am exactly who you thought I was. And I am doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. And you will stay in prison. In other words, I am exactly who I am. I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. And I will do it as I see fit. And you will stay in prison. Now, folks, John's question is a personal one. You have to understand. They've already told him that Jesus is doing all sorts of things around the, around the community. But John's question is a personal one, personal one. I'm not sure he's the savior because I was supposed to prepare the way for him and I'm in prison. And Jesus' answer is a personal one. John, you did prepare the way for me and I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. And you will still be in jail. And you will die in jail. In fact, he substitutes the passages about being the prisoner being set free with his own, with his own passage, doesn't he? Look at, look at the passage again, verse 22, or verse 23 rather. He says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He says, go, go back and tell John that. In other words, you're not getting out, but blessed are you if you don't leave. Are you tracking with that? That's not the, that's not the answer sometimes we want to hear, Right? We want to hear the answer. Okay, well, God, he did it for them. He did it for you. He, he did it for you. So he's going to do it for me. And, and Jesus says, that's right. You know, I healed Bobby. Brian, I'm about to heal you right now. Today It's your time. Of course I'm going to heal you, Brian. I healed Bobby. Bobby got the job. Brian, your job's coming up next. Bobby got the house. Brian, your house is coming up next. Bobby got the great family. Brian. Your family's coming. 
But see, folks, he doesn't give John that answer. Because with Advent, there's not only the anticipation of Advent, there's the agony of Advent. There's a pain as we wait in the in-between. There's a, there's a struggle as we wait in the in-between of what's here and what's yet to be. And Jesus highlights this struggle for one that he loves probably more than anyone. He highlights this struggle and he says that, John, I'm doing exactly what I have been called to do, but you will not leave this prison. You will die here. At this point, those who are listening, I'm sure they, they, the, the, the disciples who are charged with, with going back and sending the message, I'm sure, I'm sure at this point, they're a little doubtful about what's going on. I'm sure the crowd that's listening to Jesus proclaim this, I'm sure they're a little doubtful about what's going on. I mean, a little angry, a little frustrated. I mean, why wouldn't they be right? This man spent his whole life preparing the way for this, for this savior and, 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 and he's supposed to come and set things in order. And now he's telling him that nope, you're going to stay there. And, and, and this man, this king who cheated, who, who cheated and took his brother's wife and, and you spoke truth to that and you declared that that was wrong and, and your payment is going to be that this adulterous king is going to have your head on a platter. You're going to die for speaking that truth. How foolish of John to have wasted his life in such a way, I'm sure, is what many, have, many would have thought at the hearing of those words. Have you ever felt that sneaky suspicion creep into your mind? That you might be, in fact, just wasting your life in Jesus? Why don't I just go, go ahead and just follow the lust of my heart? Whatever the lust is, whatever lusty lust thing I'm thinking, why don't I just go after it, right? What am I doing? What, what, why am I fighting this stuff? Why don't I just go ahead and chase every single every single penny that I can possibly stand to fit in my coffers? Why don't I just go after every single coin that they will throw at me? Why, why am I withholding these pleasures from myself? Why don't I just go ahead and leave this marriage? What on earth am I doing going through this craziness? Why don't I just leave? Why don't I just go ahead and give in to whatever sexual temptations that creep into my crazy head? Why don't I just go and do it? Have you ever found yourself just asking the question, what am I doing right now? My life doesn't feel like it's getting better. Sometimes it feels like it's getting worse. And I love Jesus. Then you've been in John's shoes. This life we live between what has already come through Christ and what is yet to come through Christ 
is full of unresolved, sinful, ugly messes. And because of that, it is easier than some of us care to admit to ask the question, what am I doing with my life? To what end is my faith actually taking me? And it's to these questions that Jesus offers us hope. The first thing that we see, at least the first thing I want to point out, is that he reaffirms John. He gives John hard words, sends hard words back to, back to John through his disciples. But for those that are wondering, well, maybe John just completely wasted his life. He turns to them and he gives them verses 24 and on. He says, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you get out into the wilderness to see? Or what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is he whom, of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will, repre- who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. For the audience gathered, Jesus answers the questions of any who may be asking, Is John wasting his life? He answers, Absolutely not. Not only did John not waste his life, but John is living a more purposeful life than any of you are living. That there is none greater than this man who sits behind prison walls awaiting his beheading. He said, you expected, what did you expect to see? You came to see a king and dressed up in priestly or dressed up in fine garments. And you found something that you didn't expect. But what you found was the real. What you found was the one that I sent ahead of me. See, John prepares the way not only in his life, not only in his living, but John prepares the way in his suffering. See, Jesus comes and brings life, but he comes and brings life how? Through dying, through suffering. And so John, very little did he realize that he was still fulfilling his purposes and still preparing the way, all the way to his death. In John, we have a precursor. We have a preview of the path that the king was to take. And so in this way, Jesus is saying that that John is fulfilling his purposes because John is walking alongside me. You see, Jesus is not offering us this life and saying, suffer, but he says suffer while he stands back from a distance and watches and observes and chuckles 
as we grovel and cry and weep. No, Jesus steps into the suffering alongside us. He steps into John's suffering. He steps into the in-between. He steps into the agony of the advent. How so? Because he comes and he lives in the same brokenness that you live. He comes and he endures the same unfulfilled and yet completed promises that you endure. He comes and he endures the same injustice and unfair activities or offenses against him, uh, against you or against himself as is to you or as has been done to you. He embodies it all, all the way to Golgotha where he is hung unjustly for the sins of the world. He lives in the in-between with you. And through his living in the in-between, he produces the hope to come. By living in the in-between with us, he produces the hope. The eternal life, the fulfillment, the culmination of all of our waiting. He fulfills it. And that's why he says in verse 23, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Translation, blessed is the one who does not quit. Blessed is the one who does not leave. Blessed is the one who does not say to themselves, if this life is not what it's supposed to be, so maybe I should be looking for another one. Maybe I should be looking for another savior. Blessed is the one who refuses to say that, who doesn't allow the in-between to rob them of their hope that is resting in Jesus Christ. And why are they blessed? Because they get an opportunity to experience the kingdom when it is fully realized. They get an opportunity to experience what Jesus came and lived in the in-between to produce. They get a chance to experience it fully and completely where there is no suffering, there is no brokenness, there is no injustice, there is no unrighteousness, there is no evil triumphing, uh, triumphant, triumphing over good. There is none of that. There is just Christ glorified throughout all of eternity. They get a chance to live and what they're waiting for. And Jesus says to those people, there is no greater life. What does he say in, Luke, in, in chapter 7, verse 28? He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Listen to what he says after. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. He says, don't quit. 
Don't fret. Don't faint. Because there's a life that's coming that's greater than any life you could ever imagine living here. And so we wait. We wait with anticipation. We wait with our eyes fixed on Jesus. We wait through the struggles and through the hardships of life. We look to our king and we say, Lord, give us strength to wait. Give us strength to not grow weary in well-doing, so in due season we shall reap if we don't faint. We wait by faithfully walking and trusting in Jesus Christ, by turning daily away from ourselves and to him. We wait with agony, but we wait with anticipation, and we wait with hope for our king to come again and to set it all right.